title of our series on Revelation, and I think a good summary of the book, has been The Unveiling of Christ and His Saints. The Unveiling of Christ and His Saints. I think most Christians are much more comfortable with the idea of the unveiling of Christ, not so much the unveiling of ourselves. This sounds strange. If we ourselves are to be unveiled, it sounds nothing short of embarrassing. The things that people would see. The things that we've hidden away. But both of these are essential to the book. The last line and description of this beautiful new city in chapter 22, uh, verse 5, it's about the saints. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is about us. This is about the Christians of every generation who face testing and trial. It is a word of comfort that we, with Christ, will reign as his people forever and ever. Now, there are multiple directions we could go in looking at these last chapters this morning and how I wish we had two or three hours and I'm sure you wish it too so that I could stand up here and talk through every single angle we could ask what is the new creation like we could look at its beauty the exquisite jewels of course the radiating presence of God and of the lamb even the culture of this new city it it, does have culture. Kings bring their wealth into the city to adorn it. Obviously, also, there's no fear in this city, no constant threat, no shadow cast over it, no need for emergency planning in the case of a mass shooting or a natural disaster. Its gates are kept perpetually open. It takes imagination to enter into these descriptions because you quickly begin to wonder, what will this be like? How will this be the case? As I'll talk about later, it's interesting that the city seems to be placed amongst the nations to where there's traffic in and out of this city. How how does it work? How is it the case that this city, the new creation, is placed among the nations and people go in and out of it? What's going on? And this is exactly what the descriptions are supposed to do to lead us into prayerful, thoughtful meditation. I'll say more about it later, but the vision of this city in itself is to be an impetus for the mission of the church, the call of the church in the world. Now, the direction I'd like us to go involves us first backing up to some other places in Scripture, and I'm going to take this route for a couple of reasons. So first, I'm going to take this route because Revelation is at least a threefold ending, at least a threefold ending. It's an ending for itself, one. But it's also a conclusion to John's two-part story of Jesus, starting with his gospel and concluding here with Revelation. John has written both stories very carefully to be read together, and that's why John chapter 2 is our gospel reading for the day. Thirdly, uh, Revelation is the bookend to the entire story of Scripture. It's meant to be read with the entirety of Scripture in view, which is not easy, but... 
with hard work, it can be done. So because Revelation is rounding off these other places in Scripture, I want us to start by actually backing all the way up to Genesis chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, will you turn back to Genesis chapter 2? Now while you're doing that, I want to give you one other reason I'm taking this angle into it. Now, this kind of, what I'm about to talk about isn't necessarily fun for a lot of you, not terribly interesting, but this is good information to know. You need to know this, okay? So listen up. Before a couple of hundred years ago, people read the Bible very differently than they do today. They read the Bible differently. Before a couple hundred years ago, if a person said, if you asked them, what does it mean that you read the Bible literally? You ask them that question. First of all, it wouldn't make any sense to them, but maybe a little bit. If they could answer, they would say that to read the Bible literally to them meant that you read it in its context, where it was set, and in the genre that it's written in. So, for instance, Gospels are like biographies. The Gospels are like close to modern biographies. Revelation is an apocrypha. We, it, it is really hard for us to find a modern equivalent to this. But to them, to read it literally would mean to read it within the context it was written, to whom it was written, and within the genre that it was written. Now, something happened a couple hundred years ago with a movement we call the Enlightenment that totally changed how we read the Bible. Scholars started challenging the historical credibility of the Bible. There started being questions asked for some of the first times about how trustworthy the Bible was when it came to real history. And we don't have time to dive deep into this. If you'd like to talk more about it, I, I enjoyed that conversation, so would love to have that conversation elsewhere. Uh, suffice it to say that there have been lots of positives that have come out in that the Bible has again and again been shown to have this a deep and abiding reliability when it comes to history. But what I want to talk about this morning is the way Christians reacted among themselves to this threat. When the Bible began to be questioned historically, this, this negative thing happened. Christians began this infight among themselves about who was going to be the most conservative. Okay, here, here's what I'm going for. Groups began to challenge each other on who was the most literal and how they read the Bible. Who interpreted it the most historically accurate? Now, there, there are examples on this. So when it came to reading the Bible literally, it was no longer about genre or necessarily about context. It came to mean reading everything as historically true. So even things in Revelation that we've encountered over the last several months that we would look at as symbolic. We would want to see as symbolic like the notion of a beast and a dragon and the other strange creatures it describes, or the 1,000 years and the 144,000 people that follow the Lamb. Lots of these things began to be read literally. These came to be sort of a smell test of orthodoxy in certain circles, whether if you read these things literally, and if you didn't, you could quickly be accused of being a liberal when it came to the Bible. So if you looked back into the 1800s, at the height of this period, 
you could see dozens of splinter groups that were developing during this time, these splinter Christian groups. And a lot of the divisions were caused based on how people read a book like Revelation. There are still ripple effects of this going on today. There are churches you'll see who will require you to have certain interpretations when it comes to the book of Revelation. And a lot of this goes back to this movement, the Enlightenment, and how Christians began to read the Bible. Now, we need to be careful because the impulse here is good. The impulse, we want to read the Bible and believe it to be true. That is absolutely good. But the overemphasis on this literal tract has in some cases caused us to miss out on the Bible's treasures. So in the worst cases, it's caused great harm. Certain Christian groups began to see themselves as the only church. Or in other cases, churches force this rigid commitment to convictions about issues that are really peripheral to the faith. They're not in the creeds. They're not necessary for life and salvation. And so I'm telling you this because we're going to look at Revelation 21 and 22, this revealing of the new Jerusalem in a unique way. In a way that our forefathers in the faith had an easier time reading than we do today. Okay. This city is more than a city. This city is the church. This city is the church. It's what we and Church and the Lamb are made to be. It's what we are called to ascribe to and what we will one day be. It's a now and not yet. You know, there's this thing in the scriptures that happens constantly where it says, like, Jesus has conquered sin. And we still see sin in the world today, but he's conquered it now. And yet one day he will conquer it in full. And what we, we use this phrase, now and not yet, to describe that dynamic in which Christ has done it, but we're waiting. It's the same thing with the church when it comes to this vision. We are this city now, and yet one day we will be in full. This is what we're to be. Now, the way we see this is by starting back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. So if you turn there, now look at verse 20. Adam... The man is alone. He has no counterpart. God says there was no helper made that was fit for him. Verse 21. God causes a deep sleep to come on Adam. He takes one of his ribs and he forms this rib into a woman. This design speaks to what a man and woman are to be. They are to be one flesh. Now, this story and these few verses, as much as it is intended as something historical. So this is where we're getting back to the thing I just talked about. Of course, something historical, something happened here. But just as much, it's intended as representative of humanity. All of us exist in Adam and in Eve. Adam and Eve are stand-ins for all of humanity. And at the beginning of the story of the Bible are two humans being joined, united in love, in one flesh. This sets the plot line for the rest of Scripture. Okay, if you have your Bible open, I want you to turn to the right from Genesis, just past the middle of the Bible, to the book Song of Solomon. I know you turn here often, so it should be easy to find. 
Uh, it's Song of Solomon chapter 5. It is difficult to find. You can use your table of contents if you like. It's in between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. Now, this is one of those few books of the Bible that has a content rating. Okay? You should not, children should not read this book. If you're a teenager, read it at church, but not in your own private devotional time. It is crazy. We read this and we discover that God doesn't blush. He does not. The Song of Solomon is a love story with everything that goes along with it. It's so unique to the Bible in a way that some have ignored it. They, they haven't known what to do with it. But why is it here? There have been these attempts to downplay the sexual nature of it and to merely spiritualize it. The better way especially seeing it in the context of Revelation, is to say that this is absolutely about love. It is about marriage and sex, but it's also about Christ and his bride. What I want us to notice specifically is how ancient lovers paid compliment. So in one place, the man describes his bride as having teeth like a flock of sheep. All of them bearing twins, and not one of them is missing. This compliment does not translate. <laughs> but in other places, they compliment each other by describing one another in terms of precious jewels and building materials like gold. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. Distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is about love. Lovers. But based on this, when we arrive at the description of Christ's bride in Revelation, we should not be surprised when she is described as surrounded by jewels, having gates that are pearls and the appearance of perfect gold. This is the language of lovers. And this is how Christ describes his love. This is how her beauty, Christ's, the, the, the love of his life, Prepared for his husband. Now we're going to move further to the right in scripture here. Where, where we read from earlier, John chapter 2. We've talked about this passage a couple of times throughout the series in Revelation. But we have to keep it in mind. Jesus here in John chapter 2 is a guest at a wedding. It is the job of the groom to provide the wine at the wedding. The groom fell down on his job. They ran out of wine. So Jesus steps in and he provides a wine that awakens the taste buds. 
the best of wines. Now, if we're reading the Bible in all its richness, we are supposed to ask at this moment, is Jesus the real groom? And if he is, who is his bride? In this case, if this story is not enough, you only have to go a couple chapters further. Because quickly following John chapter 2 is John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters a woman of Samaria. No man except a husband should be alone with a woman like this in the middle of the day. But Jesus chooses to be. And this particular woman, this woman of Samaria, is known for her trouble with men. None of her marriages have worked out poorly. None of them have worked out. And now she's just cohabitating. Let, let's not go through the whole trouble of a, a wedding again. Let's just make it together. But Jesus promises this woman that he will give her a drink of water that will finally satisfy her. Jesus is a groom seeking a bride. Now, one more thing in John's gospel. On the cross, after Jesus has died, one of the soldiers pierces his side and outpours blood and water. Now, remember, we have to read the Bible very closely, not just literally, but we have to put together all the word pictures and the connections within it. Where else do you have someone's side being pierced to then bring life to something else? Adam. John was there to see this moment when Jesus' side is pierced and the blood and water flow out. It forever stuck in his mind, this sight. It was there. As God pierced Adam's side to build Eve, he caused Jesus' side to be pierced. And Jesus' bride would be made through his blood and through the water of baptism. This is why it is blood and water that John is careful to mention. Because Jesus' bride would be made through his blood and through baptism. Jesus, throughout the New Testament also, is known as the second, second Adam, isn't he? We can expect that the second Adam is going to have a wife as the first one did. It was not good for the first Adam to be alone. It will not be good for the second Adam to be alone either. Now back to Revelation. But first, Revelation chapter 2. <laughs> We're going to get there. In Revelation chapter 2, John sees Jesus for the first time in a long while. And Jesus looks like the lover from Song of Solomon. His hair is as white as wool, even like snow. Flowing. His feet are like burnished bronze being refined by fire. Christ is a lover. He's seeking a bride. Now, throughout Revelation, this is important too, we see false brides. Again and again, we see false brides. So the first false bride was Jezebel. She was a woman who gives the church license to practice whatever sexual misdeeds they please. And Jesus promises judgment on a church for tolerating her. Then there's another false bride, a harlot riding a beast. And she uses her sexual allure and everything else she has to seduce nations of people into immorality. 
finally at the end of Revelation, we see what we've been waiting for. Christ's bride is finally unveiled. And the story that started in Genesis 2 draws to its climactic moment. As Adam was joined with Eve, the lamb, at the end of Revelation, becomes one with his bride. This is the big story. The arc of the big story of scripture. Christ will have a bride. But we still need to see within this passage how the city itself points to the church. Now, I'm going to show you, try to show you very quickly uh, two ways that it does this. How this city in Revelation 21 and 22 points to the church. First, this city is filled with a holy beauty. It is filled with a holy beauty. The jewels are not only beautiful, but they're spotless and pure. All the details on the size of the city is intended to point toward its perfection. So it's this perfect, gargantuan, huge, the city. Based in, on the number 12, the number of Israel and the number of the new Israel, the number of the apostles, the church, the volume of the cube, is, it, it multiplies out to one quadrillion, 728 trillion stadia. Now, we don't use those measurements, but... Uh, as one person pointed out, this is a larger number than the dollars in the U.S. national debt, which is a good thing, right? <laughs> and then to give us an idea of the size, this land mass would cover half of the U.S., but reach to the height of 260 Mount Everest. It's a perfect and massive cube. It's marvelous to imagine. But here is what is equally marvelous. The beauty of the space is always a reflection of who dwells in it. The beauty of a space is always a reflection of who dwells in it. All the descriptions of the beauty of these special gems, of the perfection of the space, all of them would be spoiled if we were still broken. If our sin still, still stained us. And if if the shadows were still cast over our lives. Unless we're fully changed, there will still be shadows that fall on the city. And this is where we get to the meaning of the city. The holy beauty of the city points to the holy beauty that Christ has given to his bride. This is what Christ has done for us now. By his blood and in the waters of baptism, Christ has cleansed you of your uncleanness and your sin. He's made you to shine with the purity and spotlessness of a pearl. Peter said that your faith, when it is tested, becomes more precious than gold itself. And that you have been made into a living stone. Christ's people are stones of the earth. They can't be broken. You are the apple, the jewel of God's eye. And the more that you dwell in him, like the lovers in the Song of Solomon, the more beautiful you become. The beauty of this city reflects his beauty and the beauty that he has given to each of us as his bride. Christ wishes to be joined with you. And so he is making you beautiful so that he can be closer to you making you holy so that he can be near to you. Now, 
all the talk of marriage that we've done in this could give a false impression that marriage in this case is more spiritual than singleness, that it points to Christ more than singleness does. And, and we would be mistaken if we believe that. See, marriage and singleness both present the opportunity to live into holiness as bride. Because singles get this unique gift. They show us now what it will be like when we are all joined with Christ in eternity. This is why faithful singleness is so essential within the church. And faithful marriages are so essential within the church. So that we know what that city will look like now when we see marriages living out their lives in faithfulness to one another with children. And when we see singles living out their lives in faithfulness to Christ and the church. This city is filled with a holy beauty. And in its holy beauty, it is pointing us to the church. Now, a second way that it points us to the church is this is a city of mission. This is a city of mission. So, again, a surprising aspect of the city is it's set within the midst of the nations. We're told the gates are always open so that the traffic is flowing in and out of it. The kings bring their wealth into it. They come to receive from the leaves of the tree of life so that they can go back out and their nations can be healed. Now, things are a little fuzzy here, but the city in this way reminds us of Eden in that Adam was to work and extend the boundaries of Eden so that it would cover the whole earth. Now, similar to that, it seems God expects the boundaries of this city, this new creation city, to be expanded through the reign of his people. He expects that its peace and beauty will be taken out to the rest of the world. And this is where the city ultimately points to the church. Where is it that God is worshipped and his people then go out to the gates into the rest of the world? What is that place in the world where he is worshipped and then people go out into the rest of the world? It's the church. Where is it that we continually find the light of Christ in the world? It's the church. It's his people. We find it in the church where his spirit dwells, where the scriptures are taught, where the Eucharist is celebrated. You see, it says in the city that the lights never go out. It's the same here. Every time the scriptures are read and we gather and the Eucharist is received, the lights of the Lamb never go out here. It says that there's this tree of life from which uh, the nations can be healed, that you can consume the fruit of this tree and it, it you receive life. Well, who is the tree of life? It's Christ. He's the vine and we are the branches who bear his fruit and then we bring healing to the world. All of this is to say that this city, just like Christ's victory over evil, is both present now and it is still to come. It's done and yet we wait for it to come in full. Christ has called his church to be the city of light, the place on earth where he reigns, where his will is done, where the nations are to find their healing as the church labors for peace and for justice and righteousness. And you know, this actually is the case. For all of its failures, the church has had as many and more successes in bringing Christ's light 
into the world and caring for the vulnerable and in laboring for peace. Where else, from what other organization, would you find something that happens like what happened in South Africa when Desmond Tutu said after apartheid, let's forgive those who have lifted us? This is the labor of the church in the world. This is the way that the church brings healing and peace to the nations and the way that the city of God in the church extends into the borders of the world. This city is a place of mission to the world to bring healing and hope. And through its holy beauty and its mission, this city points us to us. What are we to do with this vision? We need to be comforted by it. God has made us into his bride, his living stones, and we shine with his own glory. But this vision also gives us purpose. We're called to dwell within the vision of this city. We're to be warmed and comforted by its light, and then we're called to seek it in small and large ways now. To wipe away tears from one another's eyes when we grieve. To feed each other when we're hungry and invite the hungry and poor into our lives to receive food and love. Revelation over and over again describes God as the one who was and is and will be. Well, we are the bridal city of the Lamb. We are and we will be. And so with the book of Revelation... We take these last words. If you are there, I'd invite you to look at the end of Revelation chapter 22. And we're going to use these uh, words to close and to lead into our creed, confession of faith. It seems that this was part of the liturgy of the ancient uh, Christians. Jesus would say in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And then people would respond, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so I want to invite you to do this with me. I want you, after I say, surely I'm coming soon, to respond with, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you ready? Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.